Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and undoing the programming within us. Let's find your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. Hey, all. Welcome back to The Great Unlearn. Uh, This week's guest is a brother of mine named Eric Godsey. This is a great example of what it means to, like, I literally heard him on a podcast. I heard him on Kyle Kingsbury's podcast. I got about 30, I talk about it in the episode. I get about 30 minutes in and I text Kyle. I said, "I I need to know this guy. I need him in my life. He spoke so much truth for what I was going through and he has a beautiful way of articulating it, which you will hear in this episode. But it just goes to show that you don't need to know someone for 10 years to call them a brother or a sister. We sit down. This is literally the first time that he and I sat down to talk with one another besides a lunch that we had. Now, I think we would all agree when you listen to this episode, it sounds like we've known each other for years. And so I just want to encourage everyone, don't let time be a factor in how close and deep a connection you can make with someone. Okay, so in this episode, we cover a ton of stuff. We talk about archetypes and mythology, something that Eric knows very well. Um, and, and listen, for a younger brother, I think he's like 27, 28, he has a deep age-old wisdom, and I think you're going to find that um, when you listen to this episode. We talk about books like Iron John. We talk about a popular book on this podcast, Boyd Vardy's Lion Tracker's Guide to Life, uh, which again, I think so many of my listeners have picked it up on my recommendation and I've gotten a ton of great responses for that. So keep buying that book. It's amazing. Uh, what else? We talk about altars. I think we all understand that altars have been around since the dawn of time. Eric reminds me, and it blew my mind, that Today's altars, by and large, in almost everyone's home, is the television set and what exactly that represents for our society. You fucking blew my mind. In any event, we talk about spirituality. And I think for those of you who are on the path of trying to figure out what the fuck you're supposed to believe, this is really a non-woo-woo way of really having the conversation and for those of you who are seeking kind of your guidance, I think this will help you. And can you hear the birds? Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. I love you too. <laughs> anyway, listen, Eric talks about how he got to on it. And I think it's a great reminder for all of us that we can look at things two ways. Things are happening to us or things are happening for us. And along those lines, when we know what our path is and what our future holds. And he knew that he was going to work it on it. The issue that he ran into is he thought he knew when and how. And I think we described, we discussed this actually in the episode, we talk about Joe Dispenza, but 
one of the, the beautiful things that I've learned from Joe's work is that when you have your, your realized future, when you know that it's going to happen, you need to surrender the how and the when. And so just let go of that and just know that you are on the path. Okay, now Great Unlearn Business. Go to thegreatunlearn.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter. As I said before, the retreat is off, obviously, for now. But as soon as everything clears up, that will be back up and running, and I will have that information out to everybody. Uh, I'm also going to be hosting Zoom calls uh, for anyone who's interested. It's really based around the times that we're going through right now. And I'm going to be bringing on my brothers to share their stories about how things were handled for each of us back in 2008 in that financial crisis and how while this one's different and we're really isolated now, as we all know, how it's actually been a much better experience for us because we've leaned on one another rather than feeling like as men, we had to deal with all this on our own. And so as some of my brothers are struggling in some areas, we've been leaning on each other and we've been showing up by listening and by being a reflection in a mirror and questioning the stories that we're telling ourselves, is it true? Or are these just stories that are getting us more and more fear-based? And so I encourage anyone who's called to to join these Zoom calls. Uh, I'll, it'll be announced on my newsletter. It'll be announced on social media. I haven't decided exactly one. We just had our first one this past Sunday. Uh, I'm recording before that. I'm assuming it's going to be amazing because of the people that are coming on board that I already know. I think we have 25 people coming on. It's freaking awesome. I'm so stoked. So anyway, that's all. Stay safe out there and hit me up with any questions, any feedback. I love y'all. So we begin. On the way over here, I was trying to figure out, you know, like the, the intros for me are so challenging. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm riding over here and listening to the East Forest music for mushrooms and just feeling so, just so at peace in, 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 in this medium and in, in, in doing the podcast. Cause there's been times when I've, I've been a little bit disconnected from it. Am I doing, is this the right thing? Just right. The, the questioning. And coming over here and to sit down with you today, like just felt so connected to why I'm doing this. And it's to share what I've learned, bring on people who I've learned from. And what's amazing, I think today is you and I've spent very little time together, but from the moment I met you, there's just, there's, there's a warmth and a tenderness and a love that I felt for you that is really hard to explain. Likewise. And I feel like... Brothers. Yeah, and it's, and it's you know, this, this podcast is called The Great Unlearn, but embedded mm -hmm. in that is like the relearning of the importance of tribe and brotherhood. Yeah. And sisterhood, if that's what it is for you. But um, I think my relationship with you, our relationship is is really a perfect example of who can show up in your life yeah. when you're just open to, when you're receptive. And mm -hmm. we were talking about this off, off um, camera earlier, but very much a feminine 
quality is that receptivity and it's right. something that is is been new for me but has been amazing um to just sit back and allow yeah um yeah and, man the moment i met you i felt the same way yeah and 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 so just to, to start out like I, I i want people to recognize that when we open up our our hearts and we just and and, and that means different things for everyone and sometimes it's a, it sounds a little esoteric and mm -hmm. maybe we can try to unpack that for, for people sure. but i think for for men especially and it can happen for women but we 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 do want to do things and we want to be the ones initiating in that receptivity, the allowing, the witnessing, seeing people for who they are and what they, what they offer um, can be challenging. And it's, it's again, one of the things in the past couple of years that has really opened up for me yeah. and allowed for this. Um, and again, the, the, one of the, the selfish reasons out of self-interest that I'm doing the podcast is so, there's a scheduled time where I get to sit down with someone that I deeply care for and we get to talk about things that we think are interesting or important yeah. and hopefully they shift the consciousness or the awareness or they, they evoke something in the listeners um, today. So anyway, without further ado, my dear brother, Eric Godsey, um, welcome. Uh, I guess let's, I mean, we can start on anything, but it's, sure. let's, let's just give people a little bit of your background um, as you've been on this earth, you know, what growing up was like and, and kind of, yeah. I love, I love how you ended up at Honest, so don't skip that part. Yeah. Um, so whatever you feel, For call sure. to share. Yeah. So um, I would say that where it started is I, as a child, um, my parents got divorced when I was 10 and, uh, I was very close to my mother. Um, honestly, wasn't that close to my father. He, the story he was given by culture is the way to be a good dad is to work all the time, provide for your family financially, make sure that they're safe and that that's it. And, that, and that's what he did. And he did a good job at that. But, um, I read Iron John last year and oh, it really connected brother. me. Yeah, it really connected me to the knowing to be able to finally admit that um, I didn't have that fatherly mana, like the the energetic bread that they talk about in the Bible from a father figure growing up. And that's something that I sought out as a teenager through mentors and books and stuff. But um, I was always super interested in psychology and mythology as a kid. I remember... Um, I started reading Greek mythology when I was in like third grade and um, my parents just started to give me a bunch of books because they saw that I was interested. And then puberty started and I stopped reading books and it was just about playing basketball and trying to sleep with girls. And <laughs> I did that for a while. And then I tore my rotator cuff when I was a junior in high school. And before the torn rotator cuff, my only dream in life was to be a professional basketball player. And I was just good enough and just naive enough to really allow that to be a dream that I thought was possible. And um, I remember like the first game I tried to come back from my torn rotator cuff, it was just not, a. it, it was a very tough night. Like my body was like, no, we're not ready. <clears throat> and I remember coming home after the game crying and somehow uh, 
my mom was taking a philosophy class for an online college degree that she was trying to get. And she shared the allegory of the cave by Plato. And I think I was a junior. And um, that changed the course of my life. And very quickly, the ego that had developed to be the best basketball player quickly moved into, I'm going to be the greatest philosopher ever. And in, Can you just unpack, in, just in a nutshell, the, sure. the allegory of the cave? Yeah, so the allegory of the cave is, you know, it's regarded as one of the seminal pieces of philosophy in Western culture. And it's this story that Plato shares in his book, The Republic, where he tries to lay out like what the perfect society would look like. And this is a story about education. And essentially, there's a cave where there's a couple of people chained and they're facing a cave wall. And behind them is an elevated platform with a fire on it. And there's like this pathway between the fire and the elevated platform that's behind them where people will walk with all sorts of things. And the people chained only see the shadows on the wall. And, you know, their entire life, that's all they've known. And they believe that the shadows on the wall is the real world. One of the men's chains break at some point and he stumbles out of the cave into the sunlight and he sees the sun for the first time. He sees trees and grass and flowers. And as his eyes slowly adjust, because at first he can't even see it because his eyes have been in the darkness his whole life, he starts to see the truth of what the real world is and that everything is an emanation of the sun and like his whole world is blown. And then he eventually goes back into the cave to tell the chained people the truth. And the chained people get so upset with him that they want to kill him, but they're chained and they can. And so he eventually, you know, leaves. And so that's kind of the, um, so that set the tone for me to start studying philosophy and psychology pretty deeply. Um, I went to the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. I wanted to get a degree in philosophy, but they didn't have that. So they just, so I got a degree in psychology. I ended up getting a bachelor's of science in cognitive psychology, which is like how the brain processes information. And it was in college that I started doing psychedelics and that changed my whole worldview. And then after college, after I got my fancy degree, um, I started rolling burritos at Chipotle. That was the awesome job I got. And that showed me pretty early that um, I needed to create my own path if I wanted to do what I wanted to do in the world. And so I read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss like four times, uh, started a blog, started writing trip reports. You know, like that's kind of how this all started. Explain for people what trip reports are. Please. So I read a book in college called Pi Call, which is Phenylethylamines I Know and Love, written by Sasha Shulgin and his wife. Um, and he was a chemist that created over like 400 different derivatives of psychedelics. And what he would do is he would invite his friends over. They would all take the psychedelic together mm -hmm. and he would ask them all to basically write about their experience because he was creating new chemicals and he wanted to know what they did. And that inspired me. So um, once I started doing psychedelics, I, I, it's almost like I was a journalist of my own experience. And so whenever I would do a psychedelic experience, I would then write about it like I was telling myself the story of what happened. And I just started to post that online. Nobody looked at anything I wrote for over a year. You know, it was just me doing what felt right. And I eventually got a job as a call center manager for an insurance company. Um, 
which I finessed in a way where I worked from home. I worked like 10 hours a day, but all I had to do was monitor a chat room. And so I would read and work on my website the whole time I was at work. So of course, eventually I got fired. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, uh, and what's beautiful is the day I got fired, um, I log on to Facebook and the first thing I see is an ad for Aubrey Marcus's Go For Your Win course. I've never, I had not ever bought an online course. I was the type of intellectual that was like, I don't need anyone to help me. I'm going to do it on my own. And I just felt called to fucking try it. And so I spent a couple hundred bucks, bought this course. Um, and then over the next year, because I was unemployed, I was able to be super active in this community. There was a Facebook group and I was just constantly like answering people's questions, sharing cool shit that I was learning. And um, Aubrey took notice. And we had a graduation for that online course where we all met up in Austin. And Aubrey came up to me and like shook my hand and said, thank you for your contribution to the group. And instantly I was like, I'm going to get hired on it. And so I applied like that day. And um, I applied to be a copywriter. And there... It took like two months. It came down to me and one other person. I had all these synchronicities and dreams that was like, I'm I'm working it on it. It's going to happen. And I even moved to Austin before I got the job because Where I, were you? I was about an hour and a half north of here, okay. a place called Harker Heights. <clears throat> I did not have the money to move. And I moved, got a place. And um, finally, after about two months, woke up, got an email, didn't get it. And I was crushed. Like my intuition had been so fucking clear that this is what was going to happen. And so I got really drunk for like two or three days. And then after I got out of that and I was like, I, I have to take responsibility for my life. <clears throat> That's actually the day I started the podcast. Because like I knew that I had to like, I had to create my own way. And so I started my podcast um, and I started trying to be a habit change coach. Like I started to try to like help people change their habits. Um, try to do that for about a year. Wasn't, was good at actually helping people, was not good at asking for the right amount of money. Burnt through all my savings. Uh, I was too prideful to tell my mom that I was broke, but because moms know, moms know. So she invited me to just come back and stay for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And <laughs> so... Uh, I basically moved back in with my parents. I have almost no money. Um, and what's crazy, man, is while I was visiting my family, this is two years ago now, um, I ate an edible cookie and I thought I was eating like 10 milligrams and it ended up being about 110. And yeah. Yeah, so explain. Right. I mean, I know what a five milligram mm -hmm. can right. do for someone. It makes you feel pretty good. 10 is like... Right. You're ready to pack it in for the night and experience it. Right. So when <laughs> so I I used to smoke weed every day when I was a freshman in college. And then once I started doing psychedelics, it unlocked parts of my psyche that then made smoking weed basically like doing a psychedelic. And so after I started doing psychedelics, I would just need to take one hit of normal weed and I'm in a really good state for four hours. Uh, so that's equivalent to maybe like three milligrams. Um, 10 milligrams, as I understand it, is about equivalent to smoking an entire blunt to yourself. And I did about 110. And long story short, man, 
the hardest experience I've ever had up to that point in my life. Um, I truly believed that I was in a coma in a hospital and that my entire life was a hallucination that I had made up because I couldn't cope with the fact that I'd been in a car accident and I was paralyzed and I was in the hospital. And then once I sifted through that, um, I then had this experience where it felt like I had to process all of the worst traumas that I thought the people in my life had gone through as if I was that person. So I remember being in the bathroom being like, could you love yourself if you were raped? Could you love yourself if you were the rapist? Could you love yourself if you were beaten? Could you love yourself if you were the one who did the beating? Could you love yourself if you were in a coma? Could you love yourself if you were too weak to wake up out of a coma? Could you love yourself if you were gay? Could you love yourself if you were the person that hated the person who was gay? And I just went through like, there are people in my circle that I know have each of these traumas. And anyways, once I went through all that and I realized I wasn't dead and I realized that I was still me and I came back to my body, um, what I found is I started saying yes to things that I was afraid to do. And so I started going on dates with this woman in the place that my parents lived where I was avoiding going on dates for a while because I was afraid of being rejected. And then I just had the whim to apply to on it. Like it was, it, I could feel it was a catalyst of having faced these deep fears where I was more likely to do things that I was afraid to do in my waking life. Applied to on it on a whim. And what was beautiful is that the day that I applied, the woman who was the hiring manager for that position posted in that Go For Your Win community that she had put this job up. I was the first person to comment on it. I said, I applied. Good luck to everybody else. And like 15 people from the community commented on my comment saying, Eric should get the job. 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 And when I saw that, I just had this knowing of like, this is what my intuition a year ago knew. But like, I thought it had to happen then. It's the dispense, the surrender, the how and when. Right. Just, just Amen. Know. And then got a phone call from people that worked here, came, did an interview, got the job immediately. And then my path at on, at on it has been pretty interesting. I got hired basically to answer customer service emails. And so I did that for a couple of months. And then Aubrey walked up to my desk one day and we hadn't really like, I could feel that he hadn't really seen me yet just because he's a CEO and he's busy. But he walked up to my desk one day and he just said, you're smart. And I, and I looked at him confused and he said, I've been reading what you've been saying to people. And then from that point on, he started giving me more responsibilities. And then last year, um, he started his fit for service mastermind. And he didn't ask me, he told me, you're going to be one of the coaches. And um, what a jump, dude, dude. So like, he's telling me that I'm going to be a coach for like CEOs, like world movers. You know, yeah, like, explain a little bit what fit for service is yeah. so people understand. Yeah, so fit for service is a mastermind of about 100 to 150 people who um, have made, who have been successful enough in the world to have made enough money to be able to afford it. It's not cheap. And these are people who, um, like, are at the highest levels, you know, like who are doing amazing things in the world. And Aubrey tells me, you're going to be the mindset coach. Like, you're going to be the psychology person for this group. 
And he started to put me on his podcast and they ended up being some of the most viewed podcasts he's ever done. And um, my life since then has basically been this whirlwind of just uh, putting down all my stories about why I should be small and showing up again and again. And, you know, we met through the podcast, you know, or like that's how we first connected. And yeah, yeah, and just so everyone knows, um, I listened to your podcast on Kyle Kingsbury's podcast. I was traveling and I was so moved by, it was probably the first 20, 25 minutes that I texted Kyle and said, I need to know this guy. He like, I've, that, that was our connection. And I was just so drawn to, I guess the way you speak your truth. And I mean, the knowledge too is really like, it's a bit intoxicating because I think you, you, you are, you're, you're, you're able to articulate things that are really challenging and, you know, can be esoteric for people. And I think that's one of your gifts is to really unpackage these things for people. And the way you and Kyle were riffing was like, oh my (laughs) gosh, like I, I, you know, and Kyle obviously is, is, and such a close brother of mine. He's like, absolutely, brother, yeah. you're in. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's that's how we met through the podcast. But go ahead. Yeah. And um, starting to work here has forced me to show up and to grow at a rate that I couldn't imagine. And um, I'm at a point in my life where I really feel like I'm beginning to truly step into who I know I am and um, just trying to serve the collective as effectively and lovingly to myself and to the collective as I possibly can. And um, constantly, man, uh, I will cry driving home just thinking about like, I truly feel like I'm in my dream life. I feel that I have shown up, that I have faced a lot of the fears that I've had as a boy. And um, I see the effect that I'm having on the people that know me. And it's just beautiful and I'm so grateful. What I, what I, there's a lot that I love about what you said, but just those, those, um, Tears of gratitude, you know, it's something that I hadn't experienced for so many years. I didn't know what that was. And there will be times when I will just spontaneously cry and it's out of just deep gratitude or yes. some grace that someone has extended me. I, and it's just, it's, it's for me, it's becoming connected to who I am versus looking for the external validation and right. looking around, am I okay? It's like yeah. knowing that I'm okay and then having a moment of grace where it's like, oh my gosh, that is just, it's a visceral response. Absolutely. Um, like today, like I, you can kind of hear that I have a cold and I felt myself this morning when I was getting out of bed, getting ready to come to work that... I was just focused on how I didn't feel good. And I just took a moment and I just started to say out loud to myself, like, I live in this beautiful house. 
I have these beautiful roommates that I love and they feel like brothers. I have a body that is so strong and doing its best to heal. I have a car. I have this opportunity to come to a work that is truly meaningful. I have so many people that love me and support me. Like, I'm so grateful. And I had to say that out loud because I was, you know, in my feels. Like, men, when <laughs> we get sick, it's it's so easy for us just to devolve into boyhood. Buckle. Yeah. Big time. You know, and there's... Um, the funny thing about the things that are going right is that the way our conscious mind has evolved to operate is that if it goes right, it means that we don't have to give it attention because it doesn't need to be fixed. Our default is to only pay attention to the things that need to be fixed because that because one of the evolutionary rules that we run on is to conserve energy. And so it's a waste of energy to try to solve something that's working. Okay, I, I, this is the part of the podcast where I want people to really pay attention because this is the stuff that that I that I'm learning too. So this is why one of the many reasons you're on because you can, like I said, unpack these For things sure. that we we know something. Right. We don't understand the structure and, and right. how, so so yeah. Pay attention, folks. <laughs> so um we come into the world with evolutionary programmings about how our meat suit wants to operate. And one of our core programs is to conserve energy. And to conserve energy, your default is not to notice anything that's going right and only to focus on what's not going right. It's called negativity bias. The thing about gratitude is that it cultivates you working against that evolutionary program. And like, literally, an infinite amount of things are having to go perfectly right now for you to even experience consciousness. So many things in outer space, the laws of nature have to be just right in order for there to even be matter. There's an infinite amount of processes that are going on in the on earth to allow you to not be dead right now. There's an infinite amount of chemical and energetic processes happening in your body right now for you to even be conscious. And there are so many things in your life that are going perfectly that you don't notice. And not perfectly, I had this conversation last night with Gunter, it's not perfectly in the sense that we look at perfect as in, you know, that's a perfect whatever. It's the, the like without any like blend, like it is perfect like we we can't even understand how perfect that is it's right. that perfect like there is a symphony of perfection that has to happen in order for you even to feel sad or to feel angry or to feel overwhelmed and you know the beautiful thing about having a conscious gratitude practice is just to remind you like you are supported by 10 billion hands in every moment you know that's beautiful. It brings up something, and I, I got this from, I want to say it was when David Nurse was on Kyle's podcast, but he he has a, a picture of himself as a child. Mm. And um, he has it in a place where it's a reminder to him that child's dreams and hopes were. And, and so I had had this picture of mine that my mom had sent me. It was me in a little tuxedo. I was probably mm -hmm. five or six. Yeah. It's adorable. 
in the same frame. It's been in this frame for 40 years. Mm. And I had had it kind of stashed away in the house and I just brought it out and I put it on my altar mm. as, right? As a reminder, like, don't forget, you know, the hopes and dreams of that little child. And it was a way for me to get in touch with my inner child and to just to, to love him and to honor him. So anyway, it's a, it's a, I'm grateful for David for, for bringing that up uh, on the podcast because it's something that I've just recently done and it is, it is, as you can tell, it's really had an impact on my life. It's a reset. It's a, it's a, it's a more pattern interrupt where I'm not just going, like I see that picture mm-hmm. and now there's an intention behind that picture. It's not just a picture of me from 40 years ago. Um, yeah, I actually just, shared a post on Instagram um, two days ago where it's a picture of me when I'm, I think, four or five, maybe six. And I'm in a oversized white T-shirt and I'm holding a bowl of blueberries and my left hand is like folded behind my back like I'm an old man. And I've just, I've like this stillness and serenity and innocence on my face. And it's the image that my dreams use to represent my inner boy. Like I've, I've seen him in my dreams over and over and over again. Um, I see him in my psychedelic vision sometimes. And I know that that's how my psyche represents the little boy inside of me who is alive now. And all that boy wants is to be the type of love that, here's my truth, is that that boy wants to be the type of love that helps the archetypical feminine relax and heal because that was my role as a five or a six year old is like my mom had severe depression when I was a kid and very early I learned like if I act a certain way or if I say a certain thing mom's happy you know and that is a programming but I know that at the core of what I am there's this natural unfolding that just wants to be a healing force for the people that I love, you know? And I, I'm grateful that I get to be in a way every day where I get to honor that little boy, you know? And I, I've given him a name. His name is Soul, S-O-L, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I even imagine in my mind um, when he gets upset, you know, like if he doesn't get to love someone the way he wants to love someone, or if we act in a way where I don't feel like I was loving to somebody, I'll imagine my inner king pick him up and hold him and just explain to him, you know, like what happened, why it happened that way, why it's okay. And we all have an inner boy or girl inside of us that a part of being an integrated adult is to see that part, honor that part, and reparent that part to the to the degree that it needs to be reparented. And I love the idea. And I'm going to do it. Is I'm going to print out that picture, I'm going to frame it, and I'm going to put it on my altar. And like a quick thing about altars that's really interesting is I stopped watching TV when I think I was um, in college, like when I started doing psychedelics. But I didn't reorganize my room in a way where the central focus, which if you think about most people's lives, the altar of their home is a television. Wow. And that instead of using the altar as a way to mold the life they want, they're allowing corporations 
to to program them. It's their altar. And in my room now, like even the structure of homes has it to where where the bed would logically go, they have all the outlets across from the bed. Fuck, dude. Because this is blowing my mind. Because they wow. they just assume that that's where the TV goes. But now where the TV is implied to be by the architecture of the room, I have my altar. And I sit at my altar every morning and every night. And it's my portal to my God, to my specific God. I'm not trying to make anyone else connect or be with this God. This is my connection to the divine. And I have all these beautiful objects on the table. I have a tapestry that every single time I look at it, my vision starts to wave and morph like I'm on mushrooms. And like I just look at it and I tell the intentions of the day to my God. And I think that if you want an intentional life, like your altar needs to be a place that allows you to imagine your future as opposed to having it told to you by people who aren't you, you know? Like, I have a TV downstairs, for sure. And I'll go and I'll engage with a movie if I want to. But like, in my room, no TV, I have my altar. Well, I, I, there's a couple things there. I'd love, I'd love for you to talk to the different parts within us, the different archetypes and sure. in, in the interplay there, because I think that's really powerful. But also um, talk a little bit more about the statement you just said, and it's about kind of owning who you are in your divinity, mm -hmm. in your spirituality, mm -hmm rather than just listening to someone tell you what it should be. Right. There are, you know, there's a benefit to learning what other people's for sure versions are. Right. But and and try those on, but take the parts and only the parts that really resonate, resonate yeah. and sit well with you. And I think we we've talked about this, but we're we're indoctrinated into these different systems from a very young age. For sure. Religion is obviously one of them. And it has to be that way when you're a child. Like you have to have some structure in order not to die. And so let's talk a little bit for about sure. um, yeah, so the, what that may look like for someone. One of the list, you know, some of the listeners sure. who are maybe feeling there's a little, there's a lack of um, congruency with their spiritual practice right sure. now. And it's maybe based upon how they were brought up. Yeah. So how do you unlock that? You're going to die. And when you die, everyone has to die alone. And you're going to die. Your death experience is going to be between you and your psyche. It's coming for all of us. And um, to cultivate a connection to divinity is essentially to cultivate a connection to the, to the only thing that will be with you when you die. So one way to break this apart is most people think that the totality of what they are is their conscious mind. They think, I am the thing that thinks. I am the thing that responds to my name. I am the thing that makes the choices. The most cursory adventure in the psychology will show you that that's just not the case. And the model of psychology that I resonate with the most is Jungian psychology. And the way that he maps the conscious mind or the psyche, which is the totality of what you are, is 
You have your ego. That's your conscious mind. That's like 1% of what you are. And then you have your subconscious mind, which, for example, if you're in a room of 20 people and you're having a conversation with one person, if someone says your name on the other side of the room, you instantly hear it. And what that shows you is that there's a part of your mind that is aware of the entire room. But because we have this evolutionary program to conserve energy, it automatically blocks out all that it doesn't think is important. And so you ignore 99% of what you're aware of because it's not deemed important by your internal psychic structures, which can be altered. And that's a whole other story. And that's like maybe 9% of what you are. So that's 10% so far. Then you have an unconscious mind, which are all the things that you don't have conscious access to. All the processes in your body happening right now are being controlled by some part of your psyche, like the trillions of cellular division and all the chemical processes happening in your body is being conducted by some type of intelligence. That's like 40% of what mm. you are. And then Jung has this idea that there's a collective unconscious, which is shared by all conscious beings on the planet. And that part gets harder to describe, but essentially you could think of that as the totality of the psyche. So you have your conscious mind, your subconscious mind, your personal unconscious, and then the collective unconscious. When you die, when you're in the death experience, that's all you have is your psyche. No one can die with you. And my understanding is that as I cultivate a connection with what I believe of as God, that is the thing that I get to die with, you know? And so if you're using anyone else's model, it's not going to hold up in that moment of death. And my spiritual process has been to cultivate a connection to my inner God. And one of the ways to think about it, and this is a deeper idea that we probably shouldn't get into the weeds, but I'll just touch on it quickly, is that whatever you think God is, whatever words and images and metaphors and feelings you have for what you think God is, those are all placeholders. Those are the window pane on a church wall and the true God is the light beyond it. Like we will never be able to articulate what that thing is. And so, yeah, it's cool to see other people's window pane and you can, and a really beautiful thing is we have this part in our psyche that manifests in our experience as interest, as the things that we are interested in. And it's this internal guiding thing mm. that you can use to help find your true window pane. And so you can look at 10 window panes and you'll find the spots intuitively that you find beautiful. That's a hint. That's a part of your mosaic. That's a part of your window pane. And so the beautiful thing about studying religions is you will intuitively find the parts that you find beautiful. And that's a hint to you of what your true connection is. And you can slowly start to piece that together. And then when you're ready, a way to get a direct experience is psychedelics. It's it's not the only way. It's one of the ways, but it's a surefire fucking way to see what happens to your window pane when you blast it with the light of God, you know? And um, it's a constant process. It's, it's And there's also this really interesting idea. So when you dream, um, if your alarm clock starts to go off when you're in a dream, your psyche will intuitively incorporate it and it'll feel like that alarm clock stimulus was active in like five minutes of the dream. 
it feels like it's a long time, but in in real time, in objective time, it was one second. That's an insight to how how quickly your brain can process information if it if if it's in that state. And there's this idea that when you die, your brain will run the program that you've told it to run that it thinks will bring you the most peace in that moment of your death. Because your psyche wants to help you, period. And so there's this idea that like you'll experience your idea of the afterlife at your moment of death, and it will feel like years or aeons. But really, in objective time, it might be half an hour. But your brain will run the program that it thinks you want to, to soothe you. And so if your program is that you're an atheist, it'll give you blackness. If your program is that you're, you haven't done what you were supposed to do, so you should be in hell, it, it, will, it might give you that experience. Mm. If your program is God is all love, everything is accepted, it's white permeating light that fills your body with bliss, that might be what your brain gives you. And so on a really practical level, maybe you're responsible for the experience you get when you die. And um, using anyone else's window pane feels like one of the deepest disservices that we get as a human, which is we all have the task and the opportunity and the invitation to create our connection with the divine. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's, there's, there's that, it's a very connected place to come from versus adopting someone else's version. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, like when you're a baby, you don't have the mental structures to create your window pane. You have to take on someone else's to even get through the first 15 years of your life. That's okay. But as an adult, one of the most beautiful opportunities you have before you is to create your world, to create your worldview, to create your stories. And the beautiful thing about the allegory of the cave is that it's probably the most succinct invitation to that process. Like, I was just describing this to some friends yesterday, but the stories that we were given by our culture and our parents when we were kids, they will break eventually because they're incomplete and the world is infinite and you will encounter a problem that will break them. That's when the chains break. And most people, a lot of people, will run from that moment and just double down on the old stories and just will refuse the call to adventure. But when your story breaks, that's your first moment to really be like, maybe I can update this. And like my first real break was when I tore my rotator cuff. Like my story's broke, you know? And when I retell the story, it sounds like I just went right along and it was beautiful. But like for five years, I deeply resisted any other story. Like, I kept trying to play basketball. I dislocated my shoulder probably fucking 20 times over the course of three or four years because I refused to put down that story. And I suffered and I suffered. And, um, you know, pay attention to when your story breaks. And that's an invitation that you get to update it. Well, I love that you brought that up too, that the, the, you know, in telling the story, not on purpose, it, it just seemed like it's it, the way. Yeah, yeah, but there's a, like five years is an eternity for a teenager. I mean, that's your teenage yeah. years, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and, and 
you know, what I especially love about what you talked about is, is really, this is what I'm hoping to, you know, the invitation for, for the listener on this podcast, the great unlearn is to, to when that thing happens, when your story breaks, you know, don't be afraid. Don't go back in the cave and look at the shadows. It's your opportunity to step into who you are. And, and as your eyes are opening and you're getting adjusted to the light, it can be terrifying. 100%. It can hurt the eyes. 100%. And there are things I know in my experience that I didn't want to face about who I was, how I had acted, all the things that I was doing. But in a lot of ways, what the the what helped me get through those challenging times was to understand was this was was this idea of self forgiveness and that so much of that behavior was unconscious. Mm-hmm. I did not know what I was right. doing, and I was doing the best I could. Yep. And looking back, it's yeah, it's tough sometimes. It's not great behavior, quote unquote, if we're going to judge it. But it's what I knew. And yeah. in, in my ability to look back on my experience as I've come into this call to adventure, it's allowed me to look at others who are maybe quote unquote struggling and maybe exemplify, you know, showing behavior that is less than satisfactory to have a, a, an empathy for them and an understanding that this is the best they have. Like we all really, why wouldn't we be trying to show our best? Sometimes we're just in a really shitty place. 100%. And I think one of the, one of the most effective ways to help is to be the advice that you wish they would take, you know, because again, if we go back to that idea of interest, we all have this intuitive part of our psyche that's constantly paying attention to what we're interested in and what we admire. So what we admire in other people is our higher self showing us the ways that we could be, that we know we are capable of, and that when you see someone like that in your life, we were talking about this before we went on air, speaking is not the way. Being it and allowing their intuitive admiration to guide them and they'll show up eventually because people are trying their best and the way that we help them is to show them that there's something else possible. And the most effective way to do that is just to be it, you know? And so if for anyone who, has someone in their life that they feel like they're a couple of steps beyond, just continue to be the advice that you wish they would take. And the ones who are ready will show up. Like one of the ways I think about it is when you're in your own consciousness, you're an out of tuned instrument, but you're a part of a symphony and all your relationships are tuned to your untunedness. And as you start to wake up, as you start to be more in your truth and do the things you know that are right for you, you start to tune your instrument. But to the untuned instruments, you sound like the untuned instrument. But the beautiful thing, man, is a couple of the instruments will start to tune themselves too. And then you guys make a new symphony. And the more you do that, you're going to find other instruments like us. The moment we met, we could feel that the tunedness of the instruments were in harmony. And so like, 
you will find your true tribe by simply being your truth. And the people in your old tribe, the ones who are ready and the ones who are meant to be with you, they'll self-tune. And the people who don't have love, have compassion, but don't change your song, keep playing it. And the right people who are meant to be will find their way to you. Such a beautiful metaphor. That is, I mean, for 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 my brothers that are listening, they they get that. You know, we've, you know, by and large, I've had a group of of brothers from back in Chicago and, and a few others from from other cities, but we've we've had this bit of a tribe. And I feel like as I've started to play my instrument, you know, everyone is finding a way to connect to me in that way. Right. In whatever way makes the most sense for them. Right. They're not trying to play my song. Mm-hmm. They're playing their song mm-hmm. that worked. And it's yeah, man. it's so beautiful and it's in its you know, the the old me would have been like, come on, let's go. You're doing this with me. But it's I've surrendered to allowing it to happen however it needs to. And it's been amazing when people are, are, are able to connect in a way that is, as you said, is their true tune, their, their, whatever that, that is for them. And so as you're telling that, I just picture my brothers and, and how we've all taken our relationship as a group and we're just on a, such a different place right now. Yeah, man. We're just in, there's so much love and learning um, where before we were buds, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. Yeah, there's a difference between buds and brothers. There's a huge difference. Yeah. And like buds are people that you enjoy being unconscious around in certain activities. And brothers are people that like you can be conscious with in any situation, you know? And a thing that I see a lot, like with the Fit for Service Mastermind with a lot of people is there's a really uncomfortable period when you first start to tune your instrument where you will feel alone because all you've known, all your connections are from that untuned place. But it's like, have faith, continue to be. And you will find your brothers and sisters. Like they will find you. And maybe you have to play the instrument alone for a year. Like I can think back to hmm. like my quote unquote first awakening, you know, is where I really started to change my unconscious habits. I felt so alone. And I had my whole same friend group that I had when I was unconscious. And like I got to the point where I could barely stand to be around them and they didn't like being around me, you know? And for like, Two or three years, I I felt like I had maybe one or two people that were like on the same tune as me and all my old friendships fell away. But like now, you know, it's been nine years of me playing that true song and I am overwhelmed and flooded by the amount of genuine connections that I have. Like it is a grand symphony of like 200 people, you know, and there was a time where it was just just my violin, no one else was around, you know? I think that's a beautiful medicine for people because, and again, I only speak to my direct experience with this, but that's what mine felt like. 
you know, back in the fall of 2017, I had my kind of big awakening and it was part because I was at the, you know, the Las Vegas shooting. And soon after that, I, I had my first psychedelic experience that, that really opened me up to kind of what was going on with me. And over the next year or so, I felt largely alone. I was dedicated to the work of fixing myself or understanding myself and unpacking that. But my closest friends, in in my opinion, didn't understand. Now, I've come to realize that they had a deep love for me and were concerned concerned that I was sure. going to be taken my advantage of. My friends were of, concerned too, <laughs> right? Like, what's because they know that. You know, there are times when I wouldn't, I wasn't as discerning as I am mm. today. And ripe for uh, taking my good nature and in, in for abuse, right? Um, and so I, I deeply resonate with that experience of just, there was a deep knowing that I had to do this. And what was interesting is uh, I had a, uh, a personal reading with Paul Selig around that time. And so Paul is a, a medium um, who speaks to his guides and can really, uh, he's a, actually, he's going to be on the podcast in a couple of days. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and so I really want to share his work with the listener. Um, and I'll link to that in the show notes, but, but suffice it to say that Paul speaks to some guides that can speak to your higher self and what, what is kind of happening. And, one of the things he said to me or his guide said to me when I was in that experience of feeling like I, and I told him, I said, I'm okay with this, but not, no one else is okay with this, <laughs> but I feel like I'm doing the right thing. And he used this example of, you know, you basically have this box of ideas of who you are and that box got upset mm -hmm. and turned over and there's nothing left. And so the things are going to start to come back into that box. And there's only going to be a few of them. And those are the important things. Yeah. So he's like, listen, you're going to be learning a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. There's only a few things that you really need to take on. He said, but also there's going to come a time. And it was actually this past September when, when the guy had said this past September when you're going to, you, it's like you've been out in the water for a long time and you're going to wash up on the shore and you're going to be exhausted, but relieved. And you're going to be surrounded by your people. And I've just felt this connectedness to who I am and my mission and what I'm supposed to be doing here. And I felt that those people that have been either new to this tribe or have been along for a long time, they're, they're, they're all showing up in a, in a particular way that I know who my people are. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's, it's, you know, it's as if, you know, it's, it's very much played out, you know, as, as the guides would say, but um, yeah, it, it's, it's just having, we, when we're alone, we have this programming that wants us to not listen to our, 
our intuition, um, and I'm sure you could speak to this and we could probably have a whole podcast on that, but um, I've gone back to listening to that intuition. And like I was saying in the, the, the session with Paul that I, I was okay with it, even though societally it, it would have been not okay because other people weren't okay with it. So I needed to change my behavior to make it okay with everybody else. Yeah. And that's the super fucked up stuff that we do to <laughs> ourselves, right? Yeah. I didn't want to jeopardize my my relationship with my wife, with my kids, with my friends, but I had to be in my truth of what was going on. And if I, if some things were a result of that, that weren't, you know, if these things didn't endure because of that, I had to be okay with it because my truth, my personal truth is just more important than trying to abide by yeah. the structures that are put in place that guys like us are trying to unpack and understand. And so I love that, you know, that you shared what that experience was like for you because it deeply resonates with me. And I hope for anyone who's listening that they can use that as a guide when they're feeling like they're not, what they're doing is not accepted, mm -hmm. but there's a deep knowing that this is the work they have to do. Yeah, That's the good work, that's the work. One of my favorite metaphors from Jung is that the human psyche is like a seed. It's like an acorn. And the acorn in some level knows that it's meant to be an oak tree. And it will use whatever it can in the soil to alchemize energy to grow into an oak tree. And we each have this in us. We have a knowing of who and what we are meant to be. And just the same way an oak or an acorn will break through the cement of a sidewalk to find light, our psyche will fracture through the conditioning that has been layered over our, the soil of our soul. Hmm. And our ego will look at it like bad luck, like our life is falling apart, all this stuff. But no, like we're rupturing through the cement. And when we say your truth, on one level, like we all have that whisper inside of us that you could call your conscience or your soul, or your intuition, or whatever you want to call it. And it's beckoning you to the light. And the more that you answer its call, the louder it gets. Like it grows with you. And sometimes it's wrong in the sense that it thinks you have to go do A. And then you go do A and you realize that A wasn't right. But that is exactly the path the root needed to go to then make the correction. And so when we talk about speaking and acting your truth. Essentially what it is, is you're answering the call of that whisper over and over and over again. And it's having the faith that there is a force inside of you that is so much larger and smarter than your conscious mind that is guiding you towards manifesting the oak tree. And there will be points where the root is alone wedged between two cement blocks, you know, but you'll always have that whisper. And it's why stillness practices are so big. Like whatever your stillness practices, and that could be journaling or meditating or walking in nature or 
dancing, chanting, singing, playing music, whatever it is, we all have access to that whisper when we can get still. It, it, it is always here. And the more you say yes to it, the more you're going to find that you get closer and closer to experiencing grace in your life because you're living your quote-unquote truth, you know? Um, I feel called to start talking about the archetypes. Awesome. Um, before you know, before you do that, I, yeah. I just, I, um, I, before we got on, I, I told Eric that I, I, I don't have a copy of this book for him, but I was called to bring it today. Um, it's called "The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life" by Boyd Vardy, and. I've given it out to several of my friends. And um, I mean, I went on retreat in July of 2019 with Boyd. And um, it was a it was a quite a transformational experience for me. And it was an experience where I I had never felt as connected to who I am in my truth as I as I had while I was there. And so the book came out, and I love the book but I didn't know um, if it would connect with my people as much as it did with me because I actually experienced Boyd's medicine in person. Well, it's been in, in the, the, the reception from my, my brothers has been incredible. And so I happened to look over it this morning and something you just said was a thing that I had, I had marked in here um and you said going down the kind of the, the the wrong path in a sense and he says as paradoxical as it sounds going down a path and not finding a track is part of finding the track mm. the path of not here is part of the path of here amen and there's so much fucking wisdom in this book and i will link to it in the show notes Everyone needs to go out and buy themselves a copy. If you're a close friend of mine, you already have one. Um, and if you're a close friend and don't have one, my apologies, I'll get you one. <laughs> it's in the mail. Um, but I just wanted to share that medicine um, because it you because of what you spoke with. But anyway, I'd yeah, love to truth. unpack those archetypes. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite things to talk about. This is something that uh, people always ask me about. And it's something that whenever I read about it, it just lights me up. So... In Jungian psychology, um, just like the just like animals have instincts, like for example, um, you can breed chickens in a cage for four to five or six generations where they never see a hawk, and then if you get the outline of a bird and you fly it over where they like are nesting the chickens, they will instinctually run for cover, and it's because it's ingrained in their being that when they have the experience of that shape above them, that it's danger and they run. And so there's this idea in Jungian psychology called archetypes, which are primordial images or patterns of experience that we have evolved to anticipate and then react to. And those are the archetypes. And one way to think about them is that they're pre-programmed categories of being that we've evolved to anticipate. And so there's a great book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, which is one of my favorite books of all time. 
And they say their hypothesis, and there's an infinite plethora of archetypes and how you can weave them and it's fun and you can play with it, but they say that the four fundamental archetypes of the male psyche are the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. And you can look to mythology. It's in all mythology. Like every, every culture has their version of the king, of the warrior, of the magician, and the lover. And to be what I would call like a chief, like is to integrate the four archetypes. And so the king is the thing that organizes. It's the thing that runs everything. Um, it's also the thing that uses the word to bless. Like one of the mythological motifs of a king is that he could bless his people and his land through the word. The warrior is the thing that's probably most leaned on in our culture by men. And it's the one that's overemphasized to the point of being in the shadow. So every mm -hmm. archetype has its shadow aspect. So like the shadow of the king is the tyrant. It's, it's, it's the man that overbears his will to order in a way that stultifies and kills the life around him. Then there's the warrior. And the warrior is the thing in you that's brave. It's the thing in you that goes forward and does the things that you're afraid to do. But the warrior in its shadow aspect is the destroyer. It's the rapist. It's it's the thing that overexerts its aggression on the world through war, through violence, and through pain. Then there's the magician. The magician is the thing that manifests your mental life into the physical world. It's the thing that's creative. It's the thing that casts spells. And that in its darkness is the sorcerer. It's the, it's the manipulator. We were just talking about this off air, but like a magician will, will manifest from the heart. A sorcerer will try to manipulate people to do what they want him to do. And it reduces the freedom of the people around him. And then the lover, that's the thing that wants to just merge with the world. It's the thing that sees the flower and wants to cry. It's probably the archetype that's the most repressed in men right now. It's the thing that just wants to love and emerge. And it's your connection to divinity is the lover. And the shadow aspect of the lover is the, I forget the word that they use for it, but it's the, it's the part of you that has no boundaries. It's the part of you that won't enforce any boundaries at all. It's the part of you that wants to give up all responsibility and just run into the world and just dance and frolic and not take any responsibility for improving the world. And all of these archetypes have pros and cons and they need to be balanced. And um, I have this inner landscape where I imagine a throne room and I, ha I have a very distinct image of each of these archetypes and I'll talk to them. Like uh, whenever I'm about to, so every day before work, I'll read and research for like two hours. Um, I'll call forward my king. Like we are here to order the kingdom. You know, like if I'm about to work out and it's particularly hard, I'll imagine my warrior stepping up and sitting on the throne room and he's just emanating blue light. Um, if I'm with a partner and I want to be completely present, I'll call forward the lover. And my lover, like the archetype inside of me, for my lover is actually a female. It's this woman in like a golden dress who's just dancing and she's just, everything's a dance. And um, I'll call her forward. And uh, 
When I want to be creative, I'll call forward the magician. When I enter into ceremony with like mushrooms or something, I'll call forward the magician. Um, also what's beautiful is outside of those four main ones, you know, you have the archetype of the inner boy or girl, you know, like the child inside of you. Um, we all have the archetype of that thing in us that's just terrified. I call it Smeagol. You know, it's just the part that's just <laughs> constantly in fear. And what's really interesting is like these archetypes in my life have transformed because I've built a relationship with them in my psyche. And like Smeagol for a long time was Smeagol. So he was this ugly thing in the corner, just always like in fear. And he's recently transformed into a dog. And what that for me represents is I don't condemn him anymore. He's a dog. He barks. I love the dog. I feed the dog. I know that it's there to protect me, but he's kind of stupid, you know? And he'll bark at everything. But uh. it's transformed from judgment to like, I hear you. I understand you. You can sit, you know? Um, and I think that to... So the idea in Jungian psychology, like the highest goal is to what he calls the individuation process. And it's the idea of you have to make all these parts of you conscious, and then you have to integrate them in a way where they are in balance. And it's a constant process of becoming aware of these parts inside of me and trying to be the king and allow them to interact with each other in a way that is for the good of the entire kingdom. And I really think that, especially as a man, but it's for men and women, everything your consciousness touches is your kingdom. Everything your consciousness touches is your responsibility. Your role in this life, I, I no, my role that I've taken responsibility for in this life is to be a good conscious king to everything my consciousness touches. And as my consciousness touches new things, new archetypes will pop up. Like in my romantic relationships, I have a couple of archetypes that pop up. Uh, one is Don Quixote is what I call him. And he's the part that wants to save the woman, you know? And mm -hmm. I love calling him Don Quixote because it's a fruitless thing. Like, Women are not your windmills to go slay because you want to fight dragons. That's not, that's not the path, brother. Um, and then I also have an archetype that I call Samson, which comes from the Bible. And he's the part of me that thinks that women will betray you and hurt you. And so he's the one, my unconscious attachment style is avoidant. And so he's the one that will be like, don't trust. And he wants to weave stories about like, oh, you know, don't open your heart to that person, blah, 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 blah. And then the other big archetype for me in relationships is my inner boy. And there's a part of my inner boy that wants my lover to be my mommy, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I'm in relationships with a woman that I deeply care about, those are the three that I really have to pay attention to that can act up. And I have to use the king and the lover and the warrior and the magician to kind of keep them stable, you know? And then when you're in the throes of perfect love, you're just in your lover, you know, and you're just merging into them. It sounds like a lot of work. I mean, good God. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, but the the fact of the matter is, is I don't think, I don't, it's not more complicated than what it is. Yeah. You know, and you have these archetypes inside of you 
And you you can, there's a great quote by Gurdjieff, and it's, uh, man is not singular, man is legion. And this is a common thing from a lot of spiritual teachers. You are not a single thing. You are a plethora of characters inside of you, and they all have their own stories, and they're all bickering, and they're all trying to, you know, get on the throne. And if you ignore them, they'll take over, you know? So like, if you've been going really hard at work and you haven't been listening and then you go out and you get fucking smashed drunk and you go make some horrible choice that you then have to spend the next four weeks trying to repair, that's because you neglected your warrior or your lover. And then it had to seize you to let its energy out. And you see it in like, if you're a therapist, you see this all the time is people ignore their parts. And when they're when the parts ignored long enough, it will possess you. You know, there's an, like, one of the deep motifs in Greek mythology is that um, the gods would run the lives of humans. There's a quote by Jung, and it's, until the unconscious is made conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Ooh. Oof. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll unpack, unpack time, yeah. that because that, that, it hit me. <laughs> until the unconscious is made conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And what that means is that you have a bunch of stories inside of you that you're unconscious about that dictate the way that you live. Like maybe you have a story that you're not worthy of love. And so then when you start to have a relationship, you see over and over again that you sabotage it. That's one of the examples of you think it's fate. It's not fate. It's a part of you that's unconscious that gets to lurk in the shadows because you haven't looked at it. And when you're sleeping, it seizes the throne. And the goal is to get to a point where there's no shadows in the throne room. You see all the parts. Like a good king, you let them come forward and tell you their grievances, and then you find a compromise. But it might seem complicated, but it's... It's it's what's going on. It's interesting what it what that brings up for me is really the accepting of the shadow side of 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 us. Yeah. In 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 all its manifestations, and you brought up uh, Iron John, mm. um, and I read that as well. And I went. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mankind Project. I am. Yeah. And so I went. Have you been? I haven't. And so I, I went through a, a new tro- new warrior training back in June. And, you know, not to get into the details really, but it's one of the, the beauties of that work is to, instead of trying to outrun your shadow, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's undefeated. It doesn't work. It, it will get you. Yeah. Um, it's to face your shadow and embrace it and walk along with it. There's a great story um, in Women Who Run With Wolves. And I highlight, if you want to understand women, and if you are a woman and you want to understand the archetypes inside of you, there's no book I have found that's more illuminating than the women or the woman who runs with wolves. And it's it's from a woman who has a Jungian background who uses myths to illuminate like the major archetypes inside of a woman's psyche. And my favorite fucking story from that book is essentially... There's a king who has a daughter and the daughter does something the king doesn't like. And so he throws her off of a cliff and she falls into um, a pond or like a a lake and drowns and dies. Mm. 
And then, you know, this is how myths are. They're pretty brutal. And then a couple of years later, a fisherman comes to the lake and he goes out and he starts fishing. He casts out his hook. <clears throat> he thinks he has a huge fish. It catches the rib cage of this skeleton and he pulls it up and the skeleton flops onto his boat and he's terrified. So he starts to row back as fast as he can, but the skeleton is stuck in his net. And so it's always right behind him. The moment he gets to shore, he runs all the way home for miles and miles. And every time he turns around, the skeleton woman is right there because she's caught it in his net. He gets to his home. He runs into the furthest corner in the darkest part of the room, and he's breathing all heavy. And then he strikes a match, and he sees that the skeleton woman is right there. But in the glow of the match, he can see the skeleton in a new way, and he's no longer afraid. He's kind of curious. And so he slowly starts to detangle the skeleton woman from his net and he starts to whistle a song while he's doing it. And then after he's completely detangled it, he feels that he's tired and he goes to sleep. While he's sleeping, he dreams and he has some profound dream where he starts crying. And once he's crying, the skeleton woman starts to shake and starts to like move up and drink his tears. And the tears become like a river and her flesh starts to come back and her arms start to come back. And then she reaches into his chest and grabs his heart and feels the heartbeat of his heart. And that's, an, that's enough energy to transmute her back into human life. And she's this beautiful woman and she gets into bed with him and they end up getting married. Okay, that's the myth. <laughs> that's your shadow. There's a part of you, the king, that has condemned a part of you and has cast it out into the lake. And you're going to do something in your life where you're going to accidentally stir it up. And it's going to be with you no matter how much you run. And there's something about that dark night of the soul that changes your perspective. And then you get to see it in a way where you're not afraid. And then you can slowly do the work of the king energy, which is to bring order, which is to slowly detangle what brought the shadow up from the shadow aspects. And then once you start to bring awareness to it, that starts to heal it. And then essentially when you give it love, it transforms it and it becomes one of your allies. Every part of your shadow has something in it that if you were able to connect to it with true love would make you a more capable human. Like for me specifically, a big part of my shadow is aggression. Um, I grew up in a way where if I ever spoke my mind, I was afraid that it would like destabilize my mom in a way where like I would hurt her. So I wouldn't, I didn't learn how to be aggressive for a long time. And then once I started to face that part of me, I now have an ability to speak my truth more effectively because I'm not as afraid of people's reactions. That's just a very specific example of where I used to be meek. And because I didn't want to be aggressive, I wouldn't speak my truth. Once I connected to that part of my shadow, it allowed me to be more powerful in speaking my mind. And that's only been good in my life. All right, I have a question for you. As I'm thinking about the, the different parts of my shadow, um, I had an experience recently and uh, it was with my dad without getting into the particulars of it, it illuminated to me the story that my dad lives in 
is you respect authority, whether it's a coach, a teacher, a boss. They know what's right, whether it's the president, as long as it's your political affiliation and all that. And, and so it really, I, there was an experience that we were having uh, a conversation and I saw he got super uncomfortable with something that I was suggesting. And I, I don't mean to be vague on the details, but it's to protect some other parties involved. So just Hurt. please, yeah. So um, I became aware of what was going on, what I, what I perceived what was going on with my dad. And then I saw how that very notion of not questioning authority has how I've adopted that in, in a lot of ways and where I will just give away my power, my curiosity, my questioning to some others who may be experts. Mm -hmm. um, not in all cases, but there are definitely places where I subjugate myself to that. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, so for me to have the awareness around it was massive. Mm -hmm. And now it's a matter of recognizing when I'm believing that story, when there's a situation of someone who I hold in regard as mm -hmm. an expert or someone knowledgeable um, for me to step up and actually question them and not necessarily, I'm not saying confront them, but just be curious. be curious and be okay with that. And so as I'm really starting to play with this, like how do, as I present that to you, what, is, what comes up for you? Yeah. And kind of the way that I approach conversations where I feel like really what the conversation is, and this sounds like what that conversation is like, is there are people who are not at a point where they're trying to update their map. They simply want you to hear their map. They don't want to fucking change their map. They don't want to hear your map. They just want you to hear their map. And what I do in situations like that is like the Socratic method, which is essentially like, I'm just going to ask them questions about their map until they're exhausted or they fall over. Because so let's say that the conversation was about how Trump is right. And most people's opinion about anything is one quasi fact deep. Because basically how our minds work on one level is we have how we feel. And we will go find a single piece of evidence that we feel like supports it. And then we've locked that down. And then it's done. And then we go on to the next thing and the next thing. So if someone is telling me about how Trump is right or about how Trump is wrong, I'll ask them, like, um, for example, what, what got you interested in studying this? And then they'll say what they say. And then I'll ask them, like, where did you go find why you believe that? And then they'll say, and then I'll ask them, how do you fact check when you find the thing that you find? You know, and like, it's an energetic thing. It's, I'm not trying to get you. Like, I'm really trying to learn how you put your map together. And what I find is that most people, like, it breaks the program or it breaks the game that people are so used to playing when it's, this is my map, that uh, they kind of don't know what to do, you know? And then the conversation quickly. So 
whenever we're talking about politics, whenever we're talking about something where we have a strong opinion, if you play the game that I'm suggesting, it almost always gets to how they feel. And then you can have a true conversation because like all you actually know is how you feel about shit. Like we have no idea what, what's going on in this tribe on the other part of the world. Like we don't know. But what I can have a real conversation with you about is how you feel about what's going on. Like, oh, are you, you, you feel fear. Like, what are your personal practices to sit with fear? You know, like, and that's a real conversation. Or not sit with fear. Right, yeah, 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 right. 100%. Yeah. And so like in my life, <clears throat> uh, m most of the people around me have learned this just by being around me, but like, it's almost impossible to talk to me about politics or about something where you're appealing to someone else's ideas because it's not interesting and it's not a real conversation. It's it's this game that we've learned. So there's a type of psychology called transactional psychology, which is amazing. And it's basically, it's this idea that we play all these games to pass time to avoid intimacy. And one of the pastimes that people play is politics. But it's it's a way to be around people that you're close to in a way that's not intimate because you're afraid to be intimate. And the like transactional psychology, kind of what it teaches you is how to break these games to actually be intimate, you know? And so my family has learned not to talk to me about politics, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but if it does happen, um, I'm going to break the game because I don't care what you think about a thing that neither of us know almost anything about. You know, but then, almost fucking everything that people argue about is just that thing. So I love that you're talking about this. This is so right. And and so it's like finding the ways to genuinely ask the questions that bring it home to the truth. And the truth is like you're afraid because you don't feel safe. You know? And then it's like you can have a real conversation once you get to how they feel. Dude. That uh oh gosh. It uh it brings up a lot for me because it's what it's for one thing, I don't generally like going out to parties and gatherings, whether it's school functions or whatever, because I I, I hate small talk. Okay, and I think you're speaking to this is because time, yeah. there's a lack of intimate mm -hmm. I feel like I'm wasting time. Um and I'd rather be at home with my wife or my kids actually having an experience. Yeah. I don't want to, and, and one of the things I've, I've recognized is that there are social um, constructs that say that you should be going to these things. And so I've said, fuck all that. I don't believe that anymore, yeah. which has been, as you know, it's quite liberating when you start to see the bullshit behind all that. Um. But I do, I love this idea of questioning. It's the gentle questioning. It's tender. You're, you're, you're trying to get where we can really speak on a soul level about whatever it is because, and I don't, I don't know where this comes from besides the way we were brought up, but there's this idea that everything's binary. And I know that for me, I, you know, I did well in school, but I did particularly well in math and science mm -hmm. answers. I could get concrete answers. Right. And, 
And so living in this kind of binary world and then like specializing in this thing that really there was a right answer and a wrong answer. I spent so much of my life in that kind of mindset, in, in that game that as, you know, I turned 46 and these things start to blow up for me, it is uncomforting because all the things I thought I knew weren't true. They were yeah. just opinions. And fortunately, I had the scaffolding, the support of people who have gone through it, been going through it, like Kyle and, and other people of our tribe that let me know that it's all good. Just go figure it out and you're fine. And it allowed me to let go of a lot of things that I had held on to as my beliefs that weren't my beliefs. Yeah, for sure. They were someone else's and they weren't really beliefs. They were just opinions and yeah. they were things that, you know, they were doing the best they could, but that was the shitty programming they got. And it comes back to this core law of human nature is to conserve energy. And what people will do whenever they're talking about something like politics is they're showing you their crayon drawing. And they're saying, this is the world. <laughs> and like, as a psychologist, I'm personally fascinated by, like, I want to know what they're, like, if if I'm with someone and I know that the conversation is only going to be small talk, I'm still fascinated because, like, every person I meet is teaching me more about the human psyche. And so when I'm in this small talk, like, I want to know about their drawing. I want to know what crayons they used. I want to know how long they've worked on it. I want to know how close they think it is to the real thing. You know, like when people are mm. telling you about something that you know they don't know, especially if it's politics or religion or whatever, it's like they're trying to describe to you how to fix a helicopter engine. And they literally have a drawing with crayons of what they think <laughs> a helicopter is. It looks like a six-year-old drew it. And they're like, you just have to do this with the crayon. <laughs> And it's like, th this is where they're at. I know that I have my crayons, but like, I know that I can admit to myself that it's a crayon. I, I want to know how they make their crayon because we all have our crayon drawings, you know? And it's like, the people who think their crayon drawing is the helicopter engine, like, they're in for a hard game. And so it's just compassion and like, I, I use those instances as a, like, I'm doing research, you know? Like, if I have to have a conversation with someone because of the way the situation unfolded, where they're adamant about telling me about the crayon, I, I'm fucking fascinated, you know, for 20 minutes. Sure. You know? That's okay, so from a practical sense, for, for me, and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there listening who feel the same kind of pain, Without your background, right, the every normal day cat having this conversation, like how how do you like how do you hold the space? To, For sure. Like, yeah. so I I think you can literally imagine I'm in front of a six year old, yeah. and they're showing me their crayon drawing, and they're telling me that it's they drew a crayon drawing of the outline <laughs> of the skyline in Austin, or like this is the city, and you can just be like, okay, I have to talk to a five year old. I want, like, be a good dad. Like, uh, how did you draw this? Uh, like, what inspired you to draw this? How do you feel now that you've drawn it? You know, like, um, 
what advice would you give to me for how to draw? And just like, they're a five-year-old, you know? And like, just try to, a really beautiful thing, and it's why questions are so endlessly deep and fascinating, is that everyone wants to suffer less. And so when someone is showing you a stupid fucking drawing, if you ask the right questions, you can make them a better artist. You know, like if you ask the right question, like, how do you know when you've squiggled outside of the lines? What do you do when you can feel that? Like, like I'm so not invested in what they think is right about like what's happening with the world. I'm more curious with, in this 20 minutes that I'm with them, can I ask a question that will make them better at drawing? You know? That's beautiful. And I love the, the image of the dad like having that tenderness with the child and, right. and being, yeah, being a good, I love that. You know, because it's, when you get triggered, it's because some part of you feels like you have to defend against the drawing. But like if truly a six-year-old boy came up to you and said, you're a girl, here's my drawing why you're a girl, it would trigger nothing. Nothing. It would trigger nothing. You would just be curious or laugh, you know, like especially if it was a person that, if, if it was a child that you loved. Yeah. It'd just be like, how did you get to that conclusion through drawing? Yeah. You know, and it's just like curious. Like I'm so not triggered by your drawing because I know it's not the truth. It's not even close. But I know that how you draw will affect how your life unfolds, and maybe I can help. Oh, dude, that's such good medicine. I I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. How long How long we been on for? Um, almost two hours. No shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess. Well, we'll we'll wrap then because it's so funny. I had these notes down and I got to brief account of history (laughs) and that was it, which I knew was going to happen, but just in case I had some other things. Um, Okay. Where can people find you? And we'll link to it in the show notes, but please. Um, I have a podcast called The Myths That Make Us and it's all about helping people in real time kind of uncover what their story is. It's one of my favorite things to do in the world. Um, My Instagram is... My main platform, it's Eric Gotsey. So just E-R-I-C-K-G-O-D-S-E-Y. And then I write a weekly newsletter where I just share like the dopest shit I found that week. And you can get on it at ericgotsey.com. And that's basically it. Awesome. Man, I love you, brother. This was amazing. Thank I love you, you too, so man. much. Yeah, thank you. I can't wait for the next one. Absolutely. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information please check out the show notes or head on over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events and retreats. If you liked what you heard today, click subscribe and share this with friends that might enjoy our platform. Please leave a five-star rating in iTunes as this really helps us spread our message. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BunkerCal and on Facebook as John Callahan. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn. And we'll talk soon.